Well, uh, something that I, I try to do maybe about every six months or so is I will bounce out of a Sunday morning or maybe even a couple of Sundays, uh, and I will go and do like local church tours, right? So I'll kind of map out a handful of churches. I'll find out ones that have Saturday night services. I'll find the ones that have you know Sunday services that are maybe far enough apart. Maybe the buildings are closed, but their services are staggered to where maybe I can hit two or three on a Sunday morning, one on a Saturday night, one on a Sunday night. And, and I just kind of go to, you know, see what's happening in those churches, to learn from those environments, to in some ways even have a different set of eyes as I go in so that it causes me to come back to redemption with a different set of eyes too, right? So, you know, I'll kind of just, you know, how do they do their children's check-in and check-out? How did they do the greeting? How did they set up their four-year commons? What was their workflow? That kind of thing. I do a lot of that. What's interesting is for the most part, uh, I, I typically go alone. So Ellen doesn't come with me. I don't necessarily bring the kids. And a lot of you notice I don't wear a wedding ring which means I show up and I'm just the 40-something creepy guy that isn't, you know what I mean? Like, it is weird. I'm, I'm, it's like, I'm just repellent, you know? I mean, like, I'll walk in there like, what do we do with that guy? I don't know. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a ring. Hopefully he doesn't talk to us. So, you know, like, it's just, it's like a funny deal. I remember one church I went to, literally, I, like, I sat there and I felt like I just, I just cleared an area around me. Like, they knew the morning greeting was coming, you know? Like, oh, we're going to have to greet the guy. Move down, you know? And so, it's like, all right, that's, that's how it is. So, um, anyway, but there's also churches I go to that are really great and phenomenal and I have a lot of respect for, that kind of thing. So, it's a real fruitful thing for me, and like I said, I do it every six months. So, uh, this last summer, so a year ago, uh, I decided to go to a church that in the area is a relatively large church, has multiple campuses in different locations, which is more than one church. There's a number of them that are doing the multi-site model. Uh, and and uh, this one, I, this particular site I went to, I was curious about because they met in a high school. And I'm like, hey, I think I know a church that does that too. I think I should go and see how they do this. And, and again, everything was remarkably polished. I mean, they do what they do well, right? So I, I pulled up as soon as I was getting out of my car. Here comes a person. Good morning. Welcome. Here's some coffee. I'm like, wow, you're bringing coffee to my car. They did. They literally had a tray of coffee. Would you like some coffee? I'm like, we don't do this at Redemption. We should do this at Redemption, right? So... Um, Yes, I would. Thank you very much. And I'm walking. There was greeters at the curb, and then there was greeters at the door. And I walked in, and again, everything was just manicured. And man, I, I knew where to go and how to get there, and all the feel and everything else. And so, again, great environment, right? Now, the tagline of this church is "Church for the rest of us," and 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 that kind of grabbed my attention a little bit because, you know, I had already gone to a couple of churches that weekend and now I was going to that church for everybody else. They didn't want to go to any of those other churches, you know? So I'm like, all right, church for the rest of us. Rest of us who was kind of my question. Like, okay, so because, you know, there, there's a lot of different churches that kind of appeal to a lot of different personality types. This one is the Island of Misfit Toys Church, I'm assuming, because it's for everybody else that doesn't fit into any of those other churches, right? So this is a pretty bold tagline, and I'm going to be curious to see how this rolls out. So go and sit through the message, everything else. And then after the message, they played a video for a major ministry undertaking that they were about to have. Um, and, and I'm going to show you that video, and, and I have to kind of lead in with this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sharing the name of, of the church. Uh, I am sharing their video because they put it online and I can. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing it in a way that kind of sets us up for this sixth and final installment of our Satan series. Um, I'm not 
I'm not saying this church isn't Team Jesus. I'm not saying that. But, but you're going to watch a video and you're going to laugh, but your neighbor may not laugh, and they will judge you for laughing. Um, <laughs> and you are wrong to laugh, but there's some funny stuff. Um, so... That's the best way I can set this up. And then, and then from that, I will unpack why that's not healthy, all right? So good luck with all of those emotions, all right? Um, it's kind of like thumbs up, thumbs down, laugh, don't laugh, be offended, and if you giggle, we'll judge you, but not really. Okay, so um, good luck. All right, so I'm, I'm going to show this clip to you, and, and then, uh, like I said, I think it sets us up well for this sixth sermon that Satan likes to preach. Let's go ahead and check it out. You are conflicted. Do I laugh or not laugh? <laughs> what do I do with this? Now, that's sort of the way I was feeling when I went to this church. I'm like, I'm watching this video, and I'm like, you know, if I watch this on YouTube, I think it was kind of funny until I'm watching it in church, and then I'm not sure it's funny, right? And, and, and then I, I kind of went a little bit deeper with it, and then there was another video after that that kind of showed the event the previous year. And it was just, it looked like Miami Beach at spring break. You know what I mean? Just, and, and they raise a ton of money by selling all this liquor to raise money to get fresh water to people in Africa. And so there's a good cause behind it for sure. But when I took the video and I took the tagline and everything else and I put it together, I, I realized that, that what it sort of captured is this sixth and, and, and final sermon in the series that Satan loves to preach it's one that I think this particular church, not in everything, maybe just in this particular corner, I'm not trying to say everything about this church, but on this topic, I think it kind of grabbed onto this idea that says, you know what, um, authenticity will really attract people. You know, and the more authentic we are in that authenticity, the more potential we have to reach people because what we want to be is we want to be the church for everybody else reaches everybody else that the other churches can't manage to reach because we're, we're a little bit more avant-garde. We're a little bit more on that edge. We're a little bit more real with whom we are. We're a little bit more transparent with our positions, lives, and perspectives. Now, what I want to say really quick with that video is um, this isn't a statement against the consumption of alcohol. I like beer. Right? Jesus liked wine. He made it. All right? So um, this is not a statement against that. All right? It's not that. Um, but, but I want to kind of put all of that in context to some degree too. Because again, I feel like with this message more than any other message, I'm like walking this razor's edge. You, you know, because we're going to be talking about authenticity. And in one sense, I'm like, man, if we walk the, the edge of authenticity in a right, godly, biblical way, authenticity is needed and huge. And the church thrives in the context of that. But if we stray a, a little bit from that, we can have all kinds of problems because then pretty soon we're, we're opening ourselves up to all sorts of unique values under the auspice of authenticity. Now, here's some things I want to say about authenticity really quick as we get into this. Um, first of all, I love and believe in authentic Christianity, right? Where Christians are truly being transparent, open, and honest about where they're at in their faith. I, I do. I support that. I love that. I believe in that. As a pastor for years, 
I have sought to lead even by example in that. Where I'll come up on Sunday and I'll say, I struggle with doubt, or I struggle with fear, or I'm frustrated by this, or sometimes this book says things I don't like, but it wins, or whatever else. So I've always sought to be, in that sense, authentic and transparent. Um, and so again, it, it hopefully shows that what I'm about to say today isn't suddenly contrary to that idea. It's in support of that idea. And, and in fact, sometimes I've even kind of suffered kind of the scars of being transparent where I, I say something or I'm just sharing my heart and sharing my struggles and then like two weeks later it gets misrepresented or misunderstood or misinformed in some way and like, I'm like, I never, no, I don't, I don't drink the blood of puppies. I didn't say that. I, you know, I just said I don't like pets, you know, and so, you know, and it just gets all spun out, you know, and so, um, I, I do. I support transparency, even at times when I've been told stop doing that. I remember one time somebody came to Pastor Scott and they said, uh, "You know, we don't like this about Matt. He's always talking about his flaws." So Scott said, "Well, that seems to be a good feature that he's transparent." And they said, "No, he needs to be more opaque." And I'm like, <laughs> "I will work on my opaqueness." All right. So, so I get it. Not everybody likes that, but I, I, I think it's helpful. Uh, at the same time, as a church, we are advocates for that kind of Christian liberty. We don't want people to start thinking in religious ways that I just have to follow this list of rules and if I don't, everybody's going to hammer me and judge me and gossip about me. We don't want that. In fact, even in our, our part of the motto of our church, we say we're a group of imperfect people redeemed by a perfect God. Right? So we acknowledge our imperfection. We acknowledge that only God can redeem for only God is perfect. So that's totally who we are. And we want to be an environment that is safe, that is real, that is authentic, that is transparent, everything else. So that, and this is the key, so that people find help and healing through the transformation of the gospel. And I want you to lock that in. We want to be a place that's authentic and real and transparent so that people find help and healing through the transformation of the gospel. I know that's a long run-on sentence. Thank you, Puritans. All right? So, um, but that's it. That's what we care about. That's what we want to see. Unfortunately, um, some of that has shifted in recent years. And kind of this... This thing happened within the context of evangelicalism, which is really what the second half of the series has been about, how evangelicalism has gone through shifts in the last decade to maybe three or four decades, and, and how what, what took place there is that transparency became more important than transformation. That authenticity was the high value instead of saying, you know what, I'm going through an alteration of character and person. I'm growing into something. Instead of it's like, hey, as long as you're honest about who you are, that makes you a solid, awesome, true Christian. Just keep being true and open and honest, transparent, authentic. And then that's where Christianity needs to be. Without as much focus on the help and healing that comes through the transformational gospel, Right? That's sort of what happened. Now, to understand this, you've got to understand like everything else in the second half of the series, it's about uh, reactions, right? right? So, so go back to a couple of weeks ago when we had the, the big prop up here, right? And you had this side, which was grace, and that side, which was works, and what we said that Satan always wants to push us in one extreme or the other, right? 
He, he wants us to go way over here because way over here we get fixated on everything over here. Or he's fine if we're way over here because, again, we get fixated on all the details over here. He doesn't want us in the center because Jesus is center. Right, And if Jesus is center, and we come to center, we're coming to where Jesus is, and, and things change, things are different, things are biblical, things are right. He doesn't want that. He wants us to go to these different extremes. And especially in the realm of this authenticity as it relates to our junk. Right, Because we are human, humans, we have junk. In fact, what I have up here today is great. I have a junk drawer. Right there. How many of you have junk drawers? Nice. They're awesome. I mean, I love it. It's like I, I, every once in a while, this is literally some of the junk from our drawer, right? It's cool. You get stuff like this. Like you, you have a toy my kids haven't played with in years in there with a necklace wrapped around. I don't even know how it happened, right? Like that's memories though. You know what I mean? So like that's great. And you dig around more and you're like, look at this broken glasses, who doesn't want to keep that? All right, so that's fantastic. Look at this, a holder to a thing. I don't know what thing, it holds it. It's great. Look at that one earring and a rubber band. All right, Christmas earring and a rubber band. All right, so all this junk. As a matter of fact, my favorite, hair that's going to locks of love. It's on its way this week, trust me. All right, so... Junk drawer, right? So most of us have a junk drawer in our house. Most of us have a junk drawer in our lives, all right? Because we have junk. And the way that evangelical Christianity has handled our junk, right? Our spiritual junk, our sin junk, our moral junk is different depending on the season, depending on the conditions. So if you go back a little ways to what we've just come out of, we came out of more of that fundamentalist traditional Christianity that had a certain approach to people's junk, right? So we got the junk drawer, right? Or just our special little family junk drawer. And then something would happen in the life of somebody in the family that brought up junk, right? So for example, we might have this one where mom loves to crack the wine bottle at about 8.30 a.m., right? So... Her junk. And so what did good Christian people do when that junk hit the table? Quickly open the junk door, put it in, and close it so nobody sees the junk. Because even though mom might come to church a little happy, you just said, it's medication, you know? Um, it's not that because we don't want people to know, see, understand, believe that we have junk, right? Maybe it's dad's junk. Dad's junk is dad loves to gamble. Quick, throw it in the drawer. It's not gambling. Just lost his job is all, all right? Um, Throw it in the drawer, whatever it might be, you know, where we just hide the stuff. It might be, you know, somebody gets pregnant out of wedlock, so what did they do? They're a foreign exchange student for the next year, right? And they're gone, they'll come back, they'll be better than ever. It's going to be great, because we just hide it in the junk drawer. And the reason for this was a sinful reason. In the sense of the climate that the church had created, the Christianity created, is that it wasn't safe to have junk. If you came to church and you shared your junk, your sin, your problem, you might get judged, you might be looked at a certain way. Suddenly it's like nobody's coming over to play with your kids because they don't trust you because you have junk. And so everybody put up their walls. Everybody made sure the junk drawer stayed closed. It only was open long enough to throw the junk in and quickly shut it so nobody knew. 
right? So everybody was afraid that they would be gossiped about. Everybody was afraid to come out and open up and say, here is my struggle and my challenge. Right? Because again, you, you didn't want that trouble. You didn't want to be seen a certain way. Now, the tragic thing is that everybody pretty much, at some level, had some kind of junk. Right? But nobody felt they could share it. So what happened then within American culture, because we were very church-oriented, we had a civil religious system, which was Christianity for the most part. So what happened then in that context is the whole generation grew up in an environment that said, if I have any junk, we quickly hide it so nobody knows, so I don't really get to deal with it. It just gets driven underground. We pretend like, shh, that's not, that's not real. Right? And, and, and so then they grew up and they're like, wait a minute. I don't feel like I could be accepted by the Christian community. I don't feel very affirmed. I don't feel like I can do anything but put on a mask when I'm around Christians. I want to go find somebody else, something else, where I can have more authenticity. And so all these things began to spring up where people could have more authenticity. Some things are old, ancient ideas, like the bar you could be more authentic at than church. But there was also organizations, right? Civic groups, Different social entities that started saying, no, 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 you, you can be authentic with us. You can be transparent. You can be real. We're going to accept you no matter what you do or where you're at because that's our job. Even really helpful ones like AA said, you know what? It is okay to come here and seek help and say you're an alcoholic and we're going to rally around you and try to help you through that. We can accept that and hopefully see you grow. Right? So all of that kind of sprang up, but people felt they could not do the same thing in church. They could not be open. They could not share their faults. It wouldn't be safe to confess their sins. Right? It's just the way that people felt. And so, the great missiologists of the last 15 to 20 years started asking the question, well, then why are so many people leaving the church? Right? So, in tandem with people going, I'm finding my needs met elsewhere in authentic community, missiologists, because the church is usually slow to adapt, started asking, why are so many people not returning to the church after college, or they're leaving as they go to college, and they're turned off and everything else? And so they started to do all this research and ask all these questions, and in about the year 2000, they had this novel discovery. They said, the word is authenticity. Right? They said authenticity. They said people as they've left the church said, well, the problem with the church is it's hypocritical. They put on a show. They don't really live what they say, but they pretend like they've got it together. And what people are longing for more than anything else is authenticity. And so here's what we did as local church leaders around the country. We said, ah, oh, the key is authenticity. How do you market that, right? So like the craziest thing, what's the program? Uh, what are the five steps to authenticity? How do we display we're authentic? Quick, give us the points, right? To authenticity, right? It was the nuttiest thing. You go to conferences and they'd be saying, people don't want the sham sheen religion. They want authenticity. We have a thing right over here. You can buy the book and you can buy the packet and you can buy this. You know, the whole program, there's banners. We're authentic. We set it on a banner. You know, like that whole thing kind of sprang to life. Now, how that pertained to the junk drawer then is before it was quickly throwing your junk and closing. The new strategy was, oh no, man, you pull out your junk drawer, you put it on display for everybody, look at my junk. That's what we started to do, right? So we went to the other end of the spectrum and said, see, I've got junk. Man, I'm flaunting my junk, right? Don't take that wrong. Um, 
I told Reese, I said, this is going to be a tough one to get through. Did I mention four doses of DayQuil? Okay, so, um, so this is, this is the, the new strategy. Where, where the high value was, the more we admit we have junk, the more we display we have junk, the more we show the world that we have a bunch of junk, the more the world's going to say, oh, good to know you have that much junk. I've got junk too, so can I come to your junky church? You know, like, like that would be great. Right? That's sort of what began to happen. And, and with this then, what's so tragic again about this is that the primary value was the authenticity. That if you had a church where everybody said, here's my junk drawer and here's my junk, that um, you'd achieved it. Your church was healthy. Your church would grow. Uh, you, you would reach people for Jesus because you're all so real and open. Right? And, and people would even say, man, that guy over there, that guy's so real. That guy's so real. Right? He came to our group the other day and, and he admitted he surfs porn. That guy's so real. Now, now here's what I want to be careful of. I'm, I'm not trying to downplay transparency or authenticity at all. That's what I've been saying. I'm not downplaying that. But when it becomes the value, and it's more important than, that we're authentic, than that the gospel liberates us and frees us and helps us to overcome, then, then we've missed the mark. See, the big idea behind authenticity is I, I, I know my struggles, I know my sins, I know my challenges, because I call them struggles, sins, and challenges. And I'm coming out with those, not because I want to pat on the back this is man, way to have the courage to come out with those. I'm doing that because I want Jesus to deal with my, my junk. I want Jesus to heal my junk. I want Jesus to bring hope to the problems that I face because of my junk. I mean, see, that's, that's the real deal. Being real isn't the big idea. Being right and righteous is the big idea. A step to that is being real. But we don't want to just stop with being real. In fact, it was interesting, that same church that is a church for the rest of us, I was, I was interacting with somebody that goes there, a woman, and, and she says, well, if somebody wants to go to a church where they don't judge, they need to come to that church. And, and I, I thought, man, that's an interesting statement. I'm not sure what it means. If, if by that, what she means is, um, you need to come to our church because we come alongside others who are struggling and, and we try to encourage them and love. I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. I totally, I, I get behind that. If it's, uh, we don't judge because what we do is bring hope and healing to people's stuff, that's, man, 100%, I'm on board. Sign me up. If what is meant by that is that it really doesn't matter what you do as long as you're real that you do it, that's not helpful. That's not helpful, right? It may be honest, but it's not helpful. And see, the great thing about Jesus is that he comes to people as is, right? Right where they're at. Touches their lives as is, right where they stand. Whatever the junk in their drawer is, he says, yes, I'll take your junk, but here's the good news. I won't leave you in the state of your junk the rest of your life. That's not what I'm here to do. I want to see you freed from your junk. I want to see you liberated from your junk. I want to see that junk in your drawer be forgiven and not be a burden in your life for there is joy and hope and peace and obedience. And that's what Jesus is here for. To say, I want to rescue you. Not just leave you and you feel better about being left in your junk drawer. See, and that's, that's the difference. 
That's the difference. And again, are we going to do this perfectly? No, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not. But we want to be that environment where we're saying, all right, honestly, yeah, I struggle with sin. And Jesus is a solution. And I don't want to stay in that struggle. I want to be grown and groomed into the likeness of Jesus. That, that's the heart behind all of it. Now, the crazy thing about this is that it's nothing new. Um, you go back to the New Testament. We're going to race through some verses here. You go back to the New Testament, though, and you see this exact same problem existed. The polarization existed. There were some people who was like, man, just, again, throw all the junk in the drawer, slam the drawer shut as fast as possible. There was others, spill it all out, show all your junk, there you go. And then there's the center way with Jesus. It's all in the New Testament. We can see it really clearly. In fact, we want to start first with that extreme of denying you have junk. Right? Throwing it all in the drawer, slamming it as fast as you can, and calling it done. Right? That was legalism that Jesus dealt with. And there's this one scene in Luke chapter 18 where he's telling this parable. And he says there's like these two guys that go to the temple. Right? And, and, and here's the danger of this kind of thing. He talks about this idea of denying you really have anything in your life. It says in verse 9, he, and that is Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes with all that I have. Right? So here's this guy, he's pompous, he's proud, he thinks he's delivering. In other words, he doesn't really think, believe, or acknowledge that he has a drawer with junk. He's like, no, I got it together, when he really doesn't. Jesus says many times, you guys are filled with dead men's bones. Your junk drawer is filled with junk. This guy had junk in his life. But he gave that impression that as a good churchgoer, no junk. Right? And that's his first sin. He's just self-righteous. The other sin, though, is that it creates an environment where others feel like they cannot come and share their junk. And that's verse 13. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, the, the, the key there is the other man stood far off. He, he, he didn't even feel like he could come to church and be in a place to find healing because of the, I don't have junk in my drawer personality type that pretends like they have it all together and, 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 and nobody else does. And we never want to be that kind of person or that kind of church. Even the pursuit of, of, of obedience, even wanting to be right and righteous with God should bathe us in humility. The more you seek to be right with God, the more you realize it's only by grace. It's not by my merit or self-righteous strength. It's by grace, right? So uh, we should be those people that say, you know what? Yeah, man, I, this, this is a safe place to find healing, but I want to promote healing and not just self-righteousness. So, so this extreme, not healthy. Jesus had to deal with that extreme. But then there's the other extreme, right? The flaunt your junk extreme. This one is what is called antinomianism in theology. You're like, great, multi-syllable word. Thank you for that. Um, it's real simple. Anti means anti, all right? Um, nomianism is law, anti-law. 
right? You could call it anti-lawism. Uh, but this was a view of Christians. So there were some Christians that <clears throat> came to Christ, said, oh, grace saves, not works, therefore I don't need works. I don't need to do works. I can do whatever I want to do. I can sin it up as long as I'm authentic, transparent, as long as I'm real, I'm good because I'm saved by grace, right? That was their problem. In fact, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. The first couple of chapters are red letters. If you have a red letter edition where they highlight the, the words of Jesus in red, so Jesus is writing those seven letters and he writes one to a church called Thyatira and he says this, <clears throat> the words of the Son of God, he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like uh, uh, brownish bronze. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is that Dayquil kicking in? And so he says this I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and I know that your latter works exceed the first. So he praises him for some stuff. He says, But this I have against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, her name probably wasn't literally Jezebel. The name Jezebel is always bad in the Bible. Always. I remember the first time I met somebody actually named Jezebel. I'm like, your mom never read the Bible, huh? Um, <laughs> it's not a good name. And if your name's Jezebel, forget I said that. It's the day quill. All right, so... Um, <clears throat> So Jezebel, bad character in the Old Testament, did not honor God. This woman is doing the same thing. And basically, man, it's all just kind of crazy sexual morality and idolatry within the church. Like it's no big deal. Because notice what it says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. So there were some in the church that were like, hey, this is just my sexuality. This is just what I like to do. This is just my pastime. Man, it's just porn. It doesn't hurt anybody. Whatever the thing is. It's just another relationship on the side. Who cares? I know we're not married, but whatever the thing was. And then on top of that, it was all the other idolatry that they were welcoming in, right? Money saves, fame saves, society saves, whatever it was. I mean, just all of that combined. And, and the rest of the church is like, well, it's fine. We're tolerant. No big deal, right? It's all in the spirit of transparency and honesty. Nobody was hiding this at all. It was an open junk drawer. So Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. So behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. He doesn't say, hey, that transparency and authenticity and tolerance is okay. He says, no, it's sin and you need to repent. He goes on to say, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, uh, I do not lay on you any other burden. I thought this was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, that the deep things of Satan <clears throat> is simply tolerating sin like it's no big deal. Like that's the deep things of Satan. Here's my junk drawer. It's all out here. It's all exposed. Everybody can see the junk. No big deal. We don't care about the junk. It's not junk because we all have junk. So how do we start to say junk is bad if we all have junk? That makes us hypocrites. So don't say junk is bad. It's okay to say we all have junk. Junk is bad. That's why we need Jesus to help us with our junk. That's not what they were doing. And notice at the beginning it said uh, they had some good things. They had good works. They had 
things that they were doing in service and endurance and love and faith, but they were also tolerating bad things, and Jesus says that's an unacceptable thing. Just because we have good things, if we're tolerating bad things under the auspice of authenticity, that is not an acceptable thing. Under tolerance, it's not an acceptable thing. Because again, it goes against what the gospel is, which the gospel is hope and healing. Hope and healing. It's not the redefinition of sin and junk. It's hope and healing so that we are removed from the junk. That's the heart. That's why I always go back to Jesus being the center. (coughs) In fact, there's a scene in John chapter 4 with Jesus and a woman at a well where we see that center of Jesus which is honest and hopeful. It says, starting in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now here's what I love about this. First of all, Jesus makes a request, right? He says, can can I have some water to drink? At the same time, he makes an offer to this woman. And again, in the chapter before, Jesus has been talking to a religious leader and and trying to get that guy to see the implications of his ministry, right? Now he goes to the exact extreme different person, a Samaritan woman that Jews do not deal with. He says, "Mm, man, I've got something for you. It's this living water, this spiritual nourishment that will change your life, right, to the least of these, right? And and so Jesus is being very open. He's being very encouraging. He's being uh, helpful and hopeful to this woman that is an unlikely candidate. But there's also the need for honesty, right? He couldn't just look at the woman and say, hey, I have living water. Whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, no big deal. Here's living water. No, he has to get to this point of saying, man... There is this message, there is this kingdom, there is this good news, but, but, but there has to be some honesty about this. So it says in verse 16, Jesus said to the woman, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him and said, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right, saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not even your husband. What you have said is true. Now, now here's what I love about this, right? And this is giving us some direction on how we interact with one another, how we interact with the world around us. Um, Jesus is very safe for this woman. She feels disarmed with him. She feels refreshed around him. So he's not wagging a finger saying, oh, and rightly said, and by the way, you're living with a guy and you got five husbands before. He doesn't do that. He disarms her. He befriends her. He's invested into her. He cares about her. And then he says, all right, now let's, let's... Let's talk about your life situation. Jesus knows fully her life situation. He says, go get your husband. She goes, I don't have any. He goes, I know. You've had five. Now you're living with a guy. But again, that doesn't make her go, oh, now I'm shamed. That didn't make her feel like, oh, he just opened up my drawer and all of it's there and I'm embarrassed by it. Because again, what's Jesus' motive? Healing and hope. 
That's what should motivate us in the lives of people, healing and hope. So that's exactly what he does, so that there can be confession, so that there can be forgiveness, so there can be movement forward, so there can be liberation from the challenges of life. So that's what Jesus does. And so she says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I'm like, yep, pretty much. She said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that it's in Jerusalem of the place of worship where we should go. And Jesus said to the woman, he says, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you will worship, for you worship what you do not know, but we worship for what we know, for salvation comes from the Jews. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now here's what I love about this whole passage, it's the goal. The goal is worship. The goal is people being close to God. The goal is not, hey, let's get the woman to a place of authenticity. Let's get her to admit her faults and then stop there. It was authentic, admit, repent, so that people can be connected to God and worship. It's always the goal. The worship of God, the glory of God, the exaltation of God is always the goal of what we do. So if we start looking around at our world and saying, well, how do we reach them? The question has to be, what are we reaching them to? If we say, how do you reach them? You know what? I could reach all kinds of men with a stripper pole. No problem. <laughs> right? The question is, what am I reaching them to? I could throw a kager, reach tons of people, free beer. I'm reaching, oh, man, a lot of Duval, all right? So, like, <laughs> wine, all of Woodenville, all right? So, you know it's true, all right? So, but what am I reaching them to? Did I just reach them to the gimmick? Did I just reach them to the authenticity? Or did I reach them to the worship of the glory of God? Because that's Jesus' goal. So this woman has reached to the glory of God through a, a, a transition from uh, curiosity to authenticity to transformation. And, and from that, not only is she going to be a worshiper, she's going to be a missionary because she goes to her city in verse 28. It says, literally, she left her water jar and ran to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Here's what I love about this. What he said is, you're a sinner and you need me so that you might worship God. And she's like, yes, I'm a sinner. I need you. Right? Like, he didn't condemn her. He didn't shame her. He used that transparency with her so that she could be healed and whole. See, that's the model, right? That's the model. What we need to be is not just real people. We need to be real people with real hope for real people. And Jesus is the real hope. Now, we do this in different ways for different people. How do we handle unbelievers in our life, right? Because that's sometimes when I get, it's like, okay, well then, how do we differentiate between believers and unbelievers? For, for unbelievers, um, how do we deal with their, their junk drawer, so to speak? Well, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There he had written the church before, and he says in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since that would mean you would need to go out of the world. Here's what I love about this. Sometimes evangelicals will look at the unsaved world and say, start acting like saved people. 
We will boycott or picket or protest or whatever to get unsafe people to act like safe people, to take up the morality of our book. And, and, and Paul kind of looks at it and says, that's like cart before the horse, man. That's not, I mean, you're asking them to be something that they're just not built to be. Right? Now, I'm not saying in everything you can't do that, but there's a lot of things that we want to impose that just, it's, we're not doing them any favors. And so when it comes to an unbelieving individual with different things in their life, we as believers, you know what we are? We're salt, we're light. We're salt and light. We're going for the big, the, the big cell. The big cell is Jesus. The big cell is not, hey, stop this activity or stop that activity. The big cell is Jesus. And the more we can love them where they're at, the more we can receive them where they're at, the more we're going to get to that goal. Now, that does not mean that we look at their life and go, everything they do is fine. That's not what we're doing. We're not talking about a tolerance that says, I tolerate your actions as being not a problem. What we're saying is, man, I love you enough that your actions are only going to be healed in the context of you embracing Jesus. That's the big idea. Right? So that's where we focus. Right? So that's how we handle the unbelieving world in relationship to their junk drawer. It's, it's going to stay a junk drawer and more junk is going to go into it until Jesus takes all of their junk on the cross. And so we shouldn't worry about cleaning up their junk drawer. Jesus does that. We should worry about them having Jesus, right? That's the key. When it comes to how we interact with one another and our junk drawers, how do we do it? Do we do, we do this mode where we just dump it all out and say, oh, there it all is. Or would we push it all in and shove it back in as quickly as possible and pretend like we don't have it? No. There's two things. First of all, when it comes to believer junk, celebrate honesty. It is okay to celebrate honesty. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right? We should confess our sins to one another. We should. Right? I mean, this idea that says you should be too afraid to do that, you're going to get judged. Shame on us for creating an environment where people are afraid to share and confess their sins to one another. If that ever happens at redemption, I pray that Jesus, in his loving grace, takes us to the woodshed. Right? Because no place should be safer than the church to say, here's my struggle. I met with this guy, literally, this is no exaggeration, for years, every week, for the same struggle. Right? And he would come into my office, yep, blew it again, all right. How do you feel about that sin? I want to be right. Great, let's talk it out, pray it out, everything. The guy that wants to do that, you keep going the distance. Now, if there was ever a week he came in and says, it's not sin, it's not a problem, it's no big deal, everybody should overlook it under the rubric of authenticity and transparency, but no, that's bad. But the fact that you want to deal with it, that's, that's good. Honesty's good. Galatians chapter 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I, I love this because, again, the honesty factor is all throughout that where we come alongside one another, we bear one another's burdens, we don't try to pretend like we're above and beyond the potential for failure, folly, and sin. We know that we have that potential, so we should be a place where we can bear one another's burdens. Confess to one another, pray for one another, find healing. Right? We should be honest about our junk. Now, does that mean we have to do this model? We just have to have the whole thing dumped out for everybody to see. I don't, I don't think it means that. 
I think what it means is you don't just slam it shut. You find a couple of people you trust. Open up the drawer to them. Say, here, here, I need some help. Here's the stuff in here. I'm not showing the whole world all my junk, but a few of you, and it's open for you to help me. That's a good, solid way. Maybe you can do that in a regroup. Maybe you can do that in a men's Bible study, a women's Bible study. Just a couple of you get together for coffee or whatever it is. But you, you can have that where it isn't shut and it's not dumped. It's open for some to see. Right? For some to see. But the other thing in this is not just the honesty, but it's communicating hope. Communicating hope. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now, what I love about this is Paul is reminding us who we are. When we have the junk of our life, whatever your junk is, you have animosity to your husband, you have frustration toward your wife, your kids aren't obeying, your parents aren't obeying, whatever your thing is, right? You're struggling with addiction, you're struggling with porn, you're struggling with spending your money, you're str- whatever your junk is, what Paul is going to tell us is, you know what, here's some great news and hope. It does not control you. Because Christ is your life. Right? As soon as you think, I can never escape the junk in my drawer, I can never be freed of this challenge or problem, there is no hope. Man, you've lost sight of what the gospel is. The gospel is hope. What we want to say to one another is that there is hope for our sin. And so Paul writes this and says, you know what, here's what you've got to understand. Your life is Christ. Christ is really your new life, your real life. We're talking about being real. Jesus is our real life. Being real isn't just being transparent and authentic about our stuff. Being real is realizing Christ is your real life. It's because of this that then Paul says in verses 5 through 11, put off your junk. And then verses 6 through 17, he says, put on some new stuff. See, that's hope when you think you can't escape it, when you think you can't overcome it, when you think it can't be conquered, he says it can because Christ is your life. Just put it off and put on the new stuff. Now, sometimes what we do is we go, I'm just going to put off the old stuff, but we don't put on the new stuff. You know what happens? The old stuff comes back. It comes back. If we don't start to fill in to our life the things that Paul says to put on, tenderness, loving kindness, encouraging one another, speaking the word to one another, which means knowing the word to speak to one another. If we don't fill it in, we're just going to pull stuff out for a season and it's going to plop right back into the, into the drawer. We have to put it off and then put it on. Why? Because Christ, he's our life. He's our life. So I remind us of how Jesus takes us. He takes us as is, right? He takes us as is. And what he doesn't want us to do within his church, with one another, is to treat it like just keep the drawer closed. And he doesn't want us just to grab it and dump it and say, there, that's what I'm proud of. He wants us to just open it up. There's going to be stuff that comes and falls into that drawer sometimes. Say, Jesus, help me with that stuff. To be open, honest, transparent, and truthful, but with hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. 
We thank you for the promise of hope. We thank you for the fact that the gospel brings healing. And the enemy will want to preach, uh, be healed without being healed. Be healed by not feeling that what sin is is sin. Redefine it, rename it, don't see see it so seriously, blow it off. Just accept one another without change. I pray that we would accept one another and encourage one another to change. Not in self-righteousness, not in duty, but with a desire and a delight for you. We love you, thank you, and need you in your awesome name. Amen.